Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I am so glad you joined me today. I am looking forward to the show and the day. Dr. Ann Bradley is my first guest. And whenever it comes to economic news and what's going on in the economy, I always like to go to her because she is my favorite economist. She's uh, the George and Sally Mayer Fellow for Economic Education and Vice President of Academic Affairs at the Fund for American Studies. She's got the longest resume. I'm not going to read it because it would eat up the whole half hour. But Ann, how are you? I'm good, Bill. How are you? I'm good. good to be here. Yeah, you you do a lot. The Lord has uh, gifted you with a lot of talent and has you busy. So I appreciate all that you do. Well, it's my pleasure to be here. And, you know, if you're going to call me your favorite economist, I have to have somebody call me that. So I'll come back as often as possible. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, let's let's jump into some of the news that's going on. I know that the U.S. added 517,000 jobs in January. That's not a bad number. It's not a bad number. Um, you know, I feel as though you and I have been kind of having a, a gloom and doom type of conversation for about a year. Okay. And so it's good to get some good news. Um, it is a good news uh, story. We're looking at, um, you know, unemployment is a key indicator for us to understand kind of the trajectory or the path that the economy is on. And what it's important about it is it means that people who want jobs have jobs for them. And so unemployment is at a 54-year low, mm-hmm. uh, which is great news. Um, it's really back, we're back to kind of pre-pandemic unemployment levels. So it's a good thing. It means people are out there working. And when we think of, you know, recession, the R word, which we've been talking about a lot, I would say, for the last year, um, that's one of the things we're looking at. And so we're moving in the right direction, and that's a really good thing. Mm-hmm. So with that as a starting point, let's talk about the debt ceiling, because right now that's a fairly significant topic in Washington. It is. You know, it's funny when you live in Washington, D.C., and you hear the things that people are talking about all the time. And I've lived here my whole life, so I, it's normal to me. And I wonder, <laughs> does it happen <laughs> around dinner tables, you know, everywhere else? But it's, it's important, because I think what the debt ceiling Obviously, um, the Biden administration, President Biden, is going to give a State of the Union address um, this week, and we're going to learn a lot about what he has to say about the economy. And certainly um, now with the Republicans having some slight control in the House, it's going to make his goals, I think, more difficult. And he's had a hard time in the first place passing some of his um, packages. You might remember the Build Back Better plan. Um, which had some really aggressive spending in there, and, and that didn't go easily. And so I think he's worried about that. And one of the things he's going to call for is just for a lifting, a raising of the debt ceiling. And this is important because we don't want the United States government to default on its debt. Um, in the same way that you as a person don't want to default on your debt, right? Um, if the same principles are at work. It has a lot to do, uh, at least on its surface, you know, it's a credibility issue, Um it's going to all those gains from employment. We could see those erased. We could see a recession. And so 
that is the kind of momentary immediate effects. But I think when we talk about the debt ceiling, we have to talk a much, about a much more pernicious underlying problem. And I frankly think that this is true both of Democrats and of Republicans, you know, for decades, which is to say that they both want to spend a lot of money that we don't have. They like to spend it in different ways, but this is a bipartisan problem. And so ultimately, um, we're going to have to get this figured out. And as you and I have talked about many times, the problem with politics is that internally the incentives are not there for kind of prudence, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. as an individual, you and I have a lot more incentives. That doesn't mean we're always going to do the right thing, but we bear the cost of maxing out all of our credit card debt. We bear the costs of squandering our money and not being able to pay our bills, if that's what we're doing. If we're we're being reckless with our spending and then we can't pay our bills, um, that's really bad for us personally. And we bear a lot of personal costs when that happens to us. And so there's some powerful incentives to try not to do that. Mm -hmm. The U.S. government doesn't have the same incentives because we're dealing with policymakers. Policymakers care about getting reelected. And that drives their proposals. And so their proposals tend to be more short term. And so, you know, the debt ceiling was was raised three times under the Trump administration. Again, this is kind of a bipartisan problem. I think Republicans are trying to slow Biden down right now. So it's 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 kind of emerging as a political fight. Um, But it's a really fundamental problem that we're in. Mm -hmm. And if you look to the next several decades, it's a problem that requires solving. We can't spend money that we don't have. Um, the pandemic, I think, also really hurt us. It slowed us down for a little bit. We're rebounding. Um, but those kinds of crises can have significant and lasting effects on the ability of different industries, of the ability to people, for people to do their jobs. And so, you know, it's a long-winded answer to your question. But to me, this is a, such an essential and principled problem. And we're going to have to figure out a way to solve it. Yeah. Thank you for that. And I never mind a long-winded answer from you because they don't ever sound long-winded. They sound really concise and informative. Uh, Dr. Ann Bradley's my guest. So, Ann, the Federal Reserve raised interest rates by a quarter of a percentage point. Um, and uh, my question is, what, what does these higher interest rates mean for our bottom line? You mean in terms of the health of the economy and how people are doing, that kind of thing? Well, yeah. I mean, how does it affect my bottom line, your bottom line? Yeah. Well, I want to give, again, kind of a, a, a principled response, which requires, you know, kind of us thinking like economists, which is to say that if inflation, to use the word, same word again, is pernicious. And, and that's because it, everybody has to pay the price of inflation, right? It, it, it is a cost imposed upon us without our consent. And so inflation really, really hurts people. And of course, it hurts people at the bottom of the income distribution far more than it hurts people at the top, right? So a 9% inflation rate, which is what we were talking about a couple months ago, this is really not good for billionaires or for millionaires. They don't like that inflation rate. It reduces their disposable income. Tell me about it. It doesn't stop them. (laughs) It doesn't stop them from doing stuff, right? But for people that are just getting by, I mean, look at look at the prices of food, food just in general. This is really hurts Americans to put food on the table. And yeah. so this is a real problem. And the Fed is really trying. Again, I think a lot of our problems are, are not just short term. Certainly the pandemic has led to some of our problems with inflation, but they are not only short term problems. They are long term problems. 
um, that deal with kind of some of the unorthodox practices of the Federal Reserve that go back beyond predate the pandemic. And so we need the Federal Reserve to be committed to sound monetary policy, not giving loans, not making investments, none of those things. Their job is to control monetary policy and and try to generate price stability. And so they have a target rate of 2%. We're not there. And they've read, or excuse me, they've raised rates eight times, I believe, in the last year. Mm -hmm. So they're, you know, kind of we're, we're running uphill. That's hard to do because the economy is not something that we can just shackle and, and make it do what we want. And so I think the Fed is trying to fix the problem, but the problem pinches us, too. Um, look at the mortgage market right now. It's yeah. a lot harder to buy a house, right? That was my next that's question. It, yeah. Yeah. So, so that's how I think it hits our bottom line. Yeah. So the pricey mortgages aren't going away anytime soon, are they? These things are nimble and prices in a market economy are not, you know, rather than being set and written into stone, they're, they're, they're able to move. And so I don't know that this is going anywhere anytime soon to answer your question directly, but it, it doesn't mean that we're going to face permanently higher mortgage rates. But this is the result of the Fed tightening the economy. There's just, you know, more of an incentive to put your money in the bank and not touch it. Right. That's what the, that's what's supposed to happen when the Fed makes these decisions. And so they are tinkering on the margin. That's the good thing about our Federal Reserve. They are conservative in the in the, in the you know, the sense of that word, which means slow to change. They're not going to make these radical swings to try to think that, you know, if you do that, you can fix the economy in a month. And you, you can't. You can't fix the economy in a month. And that's why we need to be careful about what we do. And I think we need to pursue more prudential monetary policy in the future. And that gets back to our fiscal problems. If we're going to spend recklessly fiscally, then that is going to impact our monetary policy. So it's not just a problem of monetary policy. It's also a problem of fiscal policy. And so we need, not only do we need people in Washington of character, I think that's always kind of a question in politics. Is how do you get the right people? They're going to do the right thing when the right thing is hard to do. But I also think it's about the values of Americans. I think Americans have to say this is we have zero tolerance for this kind of fiscal recklessness, because if we just let it happen, then we're going to vote for people that make it so. But if, if there's a culture shift, which these are not hard, these are not easy to come by, but I think it's what's required in the longer run, which is people saying, like, I care about my great great grandchildren and what kind of life, what kind of economy are we going to give to them? because of the decisions we're making today. We can't rely on politicians to care about that. They'll be long gone. But we have to care about future generations. And so I think this is a deep cultural shift that is possible but hard. And as we look at history, how far do we have to go back where we said, oh, I think there was more fiscal responsibility and control over the debt and a good, strong economy? I I can't even think of when when that was. I don't know how good your history is. Yeah, I, I, it's, I definitely wasn't the A++ history student, maybe. <laughs> but right. <laughs> I, I think that, you know, you can look at the data, which is is really helpful to try to answer this question. And it seems that the 20th century was a big shift in the growth in the size and the scope of government. Mm-hmm. And, of course, something happened in 1913, which was the establishment of the IRS and the federal income tax and all the things that go along with this. And this, of course, gives the government a big purse. 
And so, you know, I think that what we're dealing with here is thinking about how to restrain the growth of the state. Um, And if you look pre, you know, kind of 18th century, 17th century, I mean, the government was new, right? In, In the 18th century, the government is brand new and it's small and it doesn't have the spending powers because it doesn't have the ability to get the cash. And so today we live in a much different globalized world and we live in a much different kind of, we have much different federal government. And so there's a lot more power of the purse. Um, That purse is really big and people like the purse being big when it's spent on things they want. You know, I think a hundred years, if you go back a hundred years, the U S government was very small compared to what it is today. Um, And today it has just grown exponentially, but it's not just a U.S. problem. If you look across industrialized economies, it seems very consistently true that as income per person goes up, in other words, as people get wealthier, um, the size of their governments get bigger. So part of it is just, I think, thinking you can afford it. Um, And I think the downside of that is that eventually the bills come due. And so we need to be careful what we agitate for. But I think 100 years gives you a good... If you go back a little more than 100 years, you see a much smaller government. Mm-hmm. Dr. Ann Bradley is my guest. We're going to take a little break, and when we come back, we will uh, learn more about what's going on in our uh, economy and, and the world. We'll be right back. Listen to Faith Radio Live or on demand no matter where you go. Download the free Faith Radio app in your app store today. Back with Dr. Ann Bradley, professor, author, all-around smart person, economist. And so I always try to look for a little silver lining in every issue. So when I think of mm-hmm. inflation, is there any silver linings maybe as we get closer to tax time? Will tax brackets change for people based on some of the inflationary problems that it caused them? Well, I think that depends on how clever your CPA is. Okay. <laughs> Having a good CPA is really important financial advice that you don't realize until you're mid, mid-life, at least yeah. for me. Um, right. So, I, I mean, I think that this alters income. Um, it certainly alters um, what people are going to be reporting as income and how their income has changed. And I think certainly a lot of that depends on what you do, right, and how you earn your income. Um, corporate earnings and things like this. So, uh, yeah, that absolutely could be a factor here. I'm not sure. I mean, the the thing about inflation is that in every situation, your dollar is worth less. So while you might get some protection, you still don't have the same purchasing power at the grocery store, Mm -hmm. no matter what. Yeah. And that's that's the problem. Um, I was at a conference this weekend and somebody asked me about eggs. Um, You know, eggs are just really extraordinarily expensive over last year. Hundreds of of a percent higher than they were. And so, you know, kind of the common question is, well, what's going on in the egg market? And actually with eggs, only a little bit, only a little bit of it can be explained using kind of just inflation as a metric. Um, We've had a huge outbreak of avian flu. So that reduces your eggs, right? It's a huge supply shock. And additionally, I just read that one of the world's, one of the bigger egg producers, manufacturing 
uh, plant caught on fire. So now you have a capacity problem. That's also a supply. So the thing is, this is why inflation is so terrible because it already raises your baseline in terms of you can't afford as much. You can't do as much. Your dollar doesn't go as far, but then you just have these types of problems, which is nobody can control the avian flu. Right. I mean, Mm -hmm. it just, those things happen. And so on top of an inflationary episode, it's so much more problematic. Mm-hmm. So that's really, I mean, I think that there's no upside here. <laughs> I think inflation is just so vicious because, again, if you're at the bottom of the income distribution, you don't have a workaround. You might just not be able to eat eggs right now. And before yeah. that was a low-cost, high-protein breakfast for you, perhaps. Yeah. And now, you know, we're, that's maybe you just can't have them at all. So you have to find something else. So these are... Real hard trade-offs for people who don't have, you know, lots and lots of income. Mm-hmm. And what about the global economy? What is that looking slightly brighter? Well, so there's lots of good things going on. I mean, you know me. We've been friends for a long time now, and I'm an optimist. I like to say I'm an optimist without being naive. So. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I do think that if you look at the world, it's really the, just the most amazing time to be alive. It's amazing on many, many dimensions, not just a materialist kind of we're richer thing, um, but we live longer. Um, there's There's been episodes of democracy and civil liberties increasing across the world. We haven't had another, you know, kind of World War Three, although we have lots of other kind of wars. So there's certainly no perfect. But, you know, the global economy is rebounding from COVID as well. I think we're going to be able to say that we live in a post-COVID world where people are recovering. Um, we live in a very integrated global economy, and that's a good thing because it kind of means that we all rise together. Um, so I do think that there's good news out there. I think that um, give it a couple of years. I think we're just going to be watching the numbers over the next couple of years to see how economic freedom has been impacted in each country from COVID. And it's not even just COVID, it's government responses to COVID, right? So China has this kind of zero COVID policy, which is crazy. That's like saying we're not going to allow the flu. I mean, it would be nice to not have the flu, (laughs) but you can't make a policy that stops the flu. What you can only do is help people get better when they get the flu, Mm -hmm. right? And you have flu shots, which actually try to ward off the flu. So there's things we can do that require lots of wealth. Um, but I think we're looking at the global economy, you know, I mean, it's, it's a great, it's a great time. We've, we're, we've survived a pandemic in a way that we never would have had we had a global pandemic just 200 years ago, it would have been devastating. And so people like doom and gloom headlines. I don't, cause I think they distract us from kind of the good things that are going on while being aware of the real problems out there. I think we need to do kind of both of those things. Mm-hmm. So, Anne, I'm going to ask you to, take off your economist and professor hat here just for a minute and put on your theologian's hat. You know, Jesus yep. says in Matthew about you can't uh, serve two gods at once. You can't mm. serve God and money. It sounds and feels like when I read that, money is a, is a spiritual power. It's, it's got a gr- it can have a, a grip. You can't, you're serving God and then money must have some kind of spiritual power as well. Yeah. Oh gosh, so true. And so important for for economists who are Christians, but just, I mean, for all of us, right? Because it, I think when economists talk, we sound like all we care about is income for its own sake. Mm-hmm. And that gets us dangerously into the territory of just like ruthless materialism, where I just, I just have to have more money than my neighbors. And I think that's what you're talking about. And that's what scripture warns us about, which is the love of money 
the love of money. Because what you love is what you do. What mm-hmm. you love is what you put your energy toward. And so, and, and many times in scripture, Jesus calls us to have the heart of the poor. What does that mean? It means utter dependence on him. And I think money and high incomes can make us feel like I can do this. I don't need Jesus. I can just do it. Mm-hmm. I can work around every problem. And so no matter how rich we get, we're poor in spirit because of sin, right? But we need to be dependent on God because of that. Mm-hmm. And so I am not of the belief that income is evil or that income is sinful. I want people who are poor to become wealthier because in a market economy, what that means is those people were allowed to use their God-given human creativity to serve other people. I mean, that's really what entrepreneurship is. Mm -hmm. And so we want to unleash that. That's what God calls us to do. Now, the market isn't the only place you can do that. You can do it in your family. You can do it in your church. I mean, we're commanded to do it in those places. So I think the market is just one avenue by which we can serve other people, but it's not the only avenue. But I agree with you. I mean, we need to heed those warnings and not be callous about them. And as people who live in a very rich country in a very rich time, I think those warnings, we need to heed them especially well because we can view, oh, I'm rich. I have all this stuff. I have a car. I have all this stuff. I, I did it all myself and I don't need Jesus. And of course, we always need Jesus. <laughs> Amen to that. How's that for my theological? No, I love it. <laughs> I, I, I love it, Ann. But when I think of some of my really successful friends and they're entrepreneurs and they made a lot of money and I, I'm I'm glad they were successful and they've done well because they're generous people, but they mm-hmm. also have a a burden of responsibility. So many people that are dependent on them for income and their yeah. jobs. Absolutely, absolutely, and that um, I, I think the the way you phrase that is beautiful. The burden of responsibility uh, in an in an, a market economy, the entrepreneur entrepreneur excuse me has an enormous burden on their shoulders. It's, it's not just to be able to produce things again, that are just who cares about them, you know, but it's, it's about the people that go to work for them and are part of that productive process. And that's why we care about unemployment, right? Because we want people who want jobs to be able to find them. And Mm. we want those, those people to be able to grow their incomes and provide for their family. But you provide for your family because you're providing a service that somebody wants and needs. And so you're right. And, and I think wealth for Christians, especially, I think wealth means we have not only the burden of entrepreneurship, that's the first burden is find a way to use your gifts to help people. But the second burden is you have a lot of material wealth. Now, you know, how can you use it to serve God's purposes? We know it's in the church, but it's probably in other places as well. Mm-hmm. So I think there's kind of a double burden of that wealth, which is Find a way to use your human capital well, and then be really generous with it. Yeah. How do you, you, know, how do you live that out? Yeah. I, I've heard that the, the, the concept of burden of responsibility before, so it's not an original thought, but it is, it is a, something that people that have a lot of resources uh, are plagued with all the time. So mm-hmm. uh, thank you, yeah. Anne. Thank you so much once again for making time in your extremely busy day to, to do the show. I appreciate you so much. It's always so fun to be here. Thanks for having me. You bet. Dr. Ann Bradley's been my guest. We're going to take a little break, and we're going to come back and talk to my eye doctor. We'll be right back. (laughs) 
It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. All right, we're going to talk a little eye health today. I've got my eye doctor here in the studio with me, and I know you've got questions because I got a whole bunch of them. But if you uh, have a question about your eye health or your vision, uh, you can text the question over. It's already open for you, 877-933-2484. Dr. Peter Melema is my guest in studio. Peter, hey. Hi, how are you? I'm good. So you, just so you know, I got lots of questions. All right. Yeah. So let I me hope st- I know the answers. Now, I hope you do too. Let me start with this one because I think this is a concern for a lot of people, and that is digital devices. Uh, all the staring that we do at screens and phones and iPads and computers are these digital devices affecting my eyes, and what can I do about it? Um, that's a question I get a lot from parents for their kids. In yeah, the I clinic. imagine. And I, my answer is always: I try to be funny. It, it doesn't work very often, but I, I try to. <laughs> I tell them it it's bad for your brains, but not for your eyes. Okay. It'll rot your brains. But there's there was a kind of wives' tale a while ago about blue light and monitors and. The truth is it won't harm your eyes at all. It can make you strained and feel uncomfortable, but no, it won't hurt. I heard that if you stare at a screen for a certain amount of time, it's good to take a break and focus on something from a distance, maybe something that's 20 feet away. Is that wives' tale or is there any truth to that? I think it's mostly wives' tale. You know, maybe it'll reduce the strain feeling, but it won't um, reduce. There's no harm in just staring at it Mm -hmm. straight what about uh, the sunshine and UV rays? Should I be having nice, nice sunglasses? Should I be wearing those all the time? Just at night. <laughs> <laughs> like the song. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> or if I think I'm some like Hollywood type and I want to go into a, a you know. No, it's um, UV. We're not sure the implications for everything. Okay. But for skin cancer around the eyes, it does cause skin cancer there. Whoa, it whoa, may. Whoa. What do you mean? Like on the eyelids, you can get skin cancer uh, just like on the rest of your body from sun exposure. Oh, okay. Um, cataracts, it may play a role in cataract formation. It's not really known for sure. And maybe in macular degeneration, it would cause it to progress faster. So I usually say it's a good idea. But um, And as far as types, people say, is there a special type I should get? Um, even gas station sunglasses usually protect from the harmful rays, so you don't have to get a fancy uh, type of sunglasses. Mm-hmm. You had mentioned cataracts. Is that something that's inevitable for m- many people? Does does the lens just get cloudy over time? How does that work? Yes. Usually most people will need cataract surgery at some point if they live long enough. Mm-hmm. Um, we were talking before the show a little bit that some patients, I think genetics play a, a role as well because I have I usually will tell patients the average age for cataract surgery is in your mid-70s. Okay. But I've done lots of 40 and 50-year-olds. I've done 104-year-old is the oldest. I've done a 12-year-old. Wow. So a some 12-year-old the, had, yeah. had a cataract. Yeah, she had other medical okay. problems, Okay. Um, bad diabetes. Oh, okay. Um, and so um, there's some genetics, too, because some, some patients in their 90s don't have much of a cataract. And um, so... Yeah, I think uh, most people end up with it at some point in their life. Mm-hmm. Here's a question that's already in. I'm 47 and my eyesight seems to be getting worse. I wake up in the morning and my eyes are blurry and it can take up to 15 minutes until I see clear. Every now and then my left or right eye will go blurry, then clear. 
What's going on? <laughs> um, I like your expression there. They can't see that on the radio. But um, <laughs> <laughs> the it sounds like when it's kind of blurred in and out, yeah. uh, it's probably not related to the age so much as um, oil buildup overnight. So that's the most common morning blur that's intermittent is when you have too much oil on your eyelids. And it kind of is like a smudge or a fingerprint in your vision that you can blink away mm-hmm. here and there. So that's the most likely in the kind of waking up, taking time to clear scenario is the oil buildup. Interesting. Yep. I've never heard of that. Oh. I well, mean, this, this, this is why I'm having you on the, the program. <laughs> so doing some warm compresses in the morning. I probably have this talk with patients five times a day at least about the oil problem. Mm-hmm. It's such a common issue. Um so doing some hot packs in the morning with a washcloth and kind of massaging the eyelids can help the oils flow better or mm-hmm. using some artificial tears. So that sounds like what that person's experiencing. Mm-hmm. Dr. Peter Melema is my guest. He's also my eye doctor. So awfully glad to have him here. Peter, why does my prescription change? Um, I'd have to look at your chart. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe not mine in particular, but but you know things get seem to get progressively a little worse over time, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And are, are, is the lens changing? And why Why do I need a different prescription? Right. So, yes, maybe. Okay. <laughs> um, there's a couple different reasons prescriptions can change in adults. So in kids, it's the eyes growing. So your eye grows till you're in your teens. It gets bigger. And the cornea, the window on the front, changes curvature too with time. And once you get to your late teens, it's usually static until you get into your 40s where the lens can chart to change shape. So the lens in your eyes like an M&M. It's the same dimensions as a regular M&M. And it can get thicker or thinner Mm -hmm. uh, depending on how it grows. And that can change the curvature, which will bend light differently. So that's one reason. Another is the cornea, the window on the front. Like I mentioned, that can change shape too. So Mm -hmm. even after cataract surgery where we replace the lens with a plastic lens, you can still get curvature changes that can change your prescription. They're not usually big changes. And Mm -hmm. it can get better or worse. So Mm -hmm. it's, you know, some people will improve their distance vision or their near vision depending on how their changes develop. Mm -hmm. I remember in eighth grade biology class, I learned about rods and cones. I can't remember anything about them. But mm. <laughs> what do rods and cones do? Rods, so it's kind of interesting. <clears throat> rods are for color vision. Okay. So there's three different types. And cones, uh, I'm sorry, I'm saying that backwards. Cones are for color vision, three different types. And rods are for black and white. Okay. Uh, night vision, more, more, they're more sensitive. So the macula, the part of your eye that sees fine detail, is really rod, uh, uh, cone, cone dense, a lot okay. more cones. And the peripheral part of your eye is more rod dense. So at night, so for example, when you look at a star at night, if you look straight at it, it'll be dim. And if you look just slightly after the side, you hit the rods more, so it'll be brighter. So yeah, it's interesting. at night, you can actually see a little bit more detail um, of the low light if you move just slightly off to the side. And the rods are more black and white, so at night, it's harder to see color. So mm-hmm. if you're really trying to see a color of a car on a dark street, you can't tell it as well. Because it's darker and your rods are working more than your cones. Mm-hmm. So, Peter, when you dilate my eyes, and obviously I, I look at my pupils when I leave your office and they're really big, right? Mm-hmm. And then you shine this intense light in my eye. What are you looking at in there? Um, your rods and cones. <laughs> <laughs> All, right. <laughs> and, All right. And so everything inside, so everything behind, so your your color part of your eyes is like a shutter. So when it's when I shine a light at your pupil, if it's not dilated, it shrinks. So I always compare – so patients, some patients really don't want to get dilated. So they don't want us to look in the eye. They'd want to 
um, just because it's uncomfortable. It is uncomfortable at times. Yeah, it is. So um, in order to see the blood vessels, the retina in the back of the eye, the gel that fills your eye Mm -hmm. in areas far in the far reaches, I compare it to patients who are resistant to, if I don't dilate your eyes, I'm looking, I'm trying to look at the inside of your room through a keyhole. And if I do dilate it, I can open the door and look around. So nice. it's like I can I can see the detail and not miss stuff as as much if mm-hmm. it's dilated. So mm-hmm. that's what it, it you're seeing. Everything in the back is like the optic nerve where glaucoma happens, the macula where macular degeneration happens, the far reaches of the retina where you can get little tears or or freckles that can develop into a problem. Mm-hmm. We're looking at all those things. So, what what are floaters? Um, floaters are <clears throat> little condensations in the gel that fills your eye. So your gel when you're born is thick like gelatin. Mm -hmm. And as you get older, little pockets of the gel will liquefy. And eventually it becomes like a water balloon where the outer part of the gel is thicker still and the inner part is watery. And eventually the water balloon pops for most people where the water goes around the edge where the gel is kind of abutting the retina inside the eye. And the, the, the thicker parts will clump together. So the thicker parts cast shadows, and that's what floaters are. So you're looking at, depending on, uh, there are other other scenarios. Some people have calcium in their eye that, for we don't even know why, that can float, or blood cells. So if you have a shower of 100 little gnats, that's mm-hmm. more concerning because that can be a broken blood vessel or a tear in the retina where pigment cells come out or blood cells come out. And that's like 100 gnats. But Whoa. if you have one big floater or a couple, that's usually more clumps in the protein. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of different categories. So based on the story, we worry more in certain scenarios than others. Mm-hmm. Peter, what is glaucoma and how, how do you get it? Um, glaucoma is a nerve disease. So okay. the nerve that connects your eye to your brain is the optic nerve. And glaucoma is damage to the nerve um, over time, usually... The only modifiable reason for it is usually related to high eye pressure. There are different categories of glaucoma where you can get it with normal eye pressure as well. But your eye has got an internal flow of water. And eventually, some the main reason for glaucoma is that flow is blocked. The outflow is blocked. So your pressure will build and push on the optic nerve and eventually kill off the cells. So it causes your side vision to go early and in the very late stages, the central vision and can blind a person if it's not recognized early. So it's kind of, I think it's the leading cause of blindness worldwide is glaucoma. But mm. in, um, so that is a, an interesting test where you get that blue light in there and, mm-hmm. and you have to get really close to put your head in that thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. I'm, in, I'm still in group therapy. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> That's a little stressful, just so you know. It is. Yeah, a lot of people don't like that part. Yeah. So it doesn't hurt me a bit, though, when I do it. Oh, <laughs> good. Good. How important is nutrition regarding eye health? Um, pretty important in the regard, uh, in the aspect of, um, you know, nutrition kind of, there's the food as- aspect and then there's like bad habit aspects like smoking. Sure. Um, and which is not really diet, I, I guess, but um, if you're very nutrient poor, like if you're, in, you know, an alcoholic patient, someone who just gets a poor diet, then you can have trouble with um, 
we talked a little about outside of the studio, like vitamin A deficiencies and things like that, where mm-hmm. your eye just doesn't function well. Um, I often tell patients with, this is more in the sense, so young kids are, your diet, I think you, we all think we're invincible when we're young, and mm-hmm. it's kind of true. You know, you can eat whatever you want. Yeah, um, it's kind of true. <laughs> and then as you get older, things, I, I think in the in the sense, the main category that you think of is macular degeneration as an eye doctor for diet. Um, and which is kind of a damage, bad things build up in the center of your vision and cause damage. Mm-hmm. And there are some uh, plugs for certain nutrients in that scenario, like vitamins, green leafy vegetables, good things, you know, kind of common sense things I'll say to patients with macular degeneration when, when they ask how, what should I do with my diet? It's like kind of common sense, leafy greens, good things are good for your eyes. Um, fatty cholesterol, um, things are not as good. Smoking is very bad. You know, it, mm-hmm. it, smoking ages your whole self by about ten years. You know, from a from a risk perspective, including your eyes. Mm-hmm. And is it uh, dangerous to rub your eyes? No, it's not, huh? Because <laughs> I'm I'm a little bit of an eye rubber. Yeah, it, there's a disease called keratoconus, which is a um, a misshape of the cornea. So the cornea is the window on the front of the eye. So it's, they think it's a little controversial, but um, kids who rub their eyes a lot at a really young age, like really hard, yeah. can develop a, it's called a cone, where that instead of a nice dome shape, it becomes like a, a pointed shape, that cornea. And that can be a pretty debilitating problem for kids. But as adults, it's not, we don't know of any problem from eye rubbing. Mm-hmm. So, Dr. Peter Melema is my guest. We're talking about eye health. If you have a question about your vision or anything you've heard so far, or you just have a question uh, about your eyes, let me know what what it is. 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. I'm back with my eye doctor, Dr. Peter Melema. Awfully glad you could make time to be here today and answer some questions because I had a bunch of them and now you have a bunch of them. There's some great questions coming in. Here's one, Peter. I get migraines with auras. Are auras a visual issue or a symptom of the migraine? Yeah, aura is a visual issue and a symptom of the migraine. (laughs) So it's um, migraine headaches the most. An aura is just anything that precedes a migraine. So aura can be, the most common is visual, um, and it's neurologic. So it's not the eye, it's the wiring um, of the brain. So an, a migraine is a storm of neurons in somewhere in your brain. And if it's just a pain center, you're just going to get a headache. If it's on the optic nerve, you're going to get usually a anywhere from a five-minute to couple-hour long sparkle, like shimmering of light or, mm-hmm. a, or a jagged edge light. So it's it's a visual phenomenon that's not coming from the eye. It's coming from a storm of neurons on the visual pathway. So it's kind of both. Mm-hmm. 
Yep. I like that. Uh, Peter, how does the retina get detached? Uh, this listener was hit in the eye with a pickleball and is having pain. Oh, ouch. Um, <laughs> the um, retina, it kind of goes to back to your floater question a little bit. Um, the gel, you, the most common reason for retina to detach is spontaneous. So the gel that fills the eye as it becomes, as the water balloon pops that I was talking about, the gel pulls on the retina. And if it's really tightly attached, kind of like different, uh, the gel is kind of attached to the retina. And if it's really tight, it pulls. And if you have some thin areas in your retina, it can break the retina. And the water that um, is there from the liquefaction of that gel gets under the retina and pulls it free. And that can also happen with trauma. So it's it's never pain. The retinal detachment itself is not painful. Mm-hmm. But if you get hit hard with a, like a, racquetball or a pickleball or something like that, it can still jar the retina, cause a tear. Usually with a retinal tear, you'll get flashing lights like camera flash or a lightning bolt, which mm-hmm. are just split second, a shower of new bugs, little floaters in your vision, or a curtain over your vision, any combination of those things you want to get checked within 24 or 48 hours. Okay. Uh, Peter, what about dry eye syndrome with Sjogren's disease? Um. Yes, it happens. Okay. <laughs> so Sjogren's is a kind of an autoimmune condition that causes dry mouth, dry eyes, dry everything. Mm-hmm. And um, it's sometimes treated just with lubrication, lubricating drops, but sometimes a rheumatologist who does things with autoimmune conditions will do other things to try to get the immune system to not um, cause dryness. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's kind of a, can be a, a hard problem to deal with. Mm-hmm. Another question, Peter. I have read that up to 20% of people who have the multifocus lenses during cataract surgery can have issues with halos. Do you know if they are trying to improve these lenses to reduce this problem? I need cataract surgery soon and would love to no longer need reading glasses, but don't want to regret making the choice to get the multifocal versus regular lenses. What do you advise patients at this time? So the multifocals work really well overall. Um, So I think of my patients that I do cataract surgery on, there's some of, if they understand the risks, they're some of the most happy patients, mm-hmm. but you got to make sure the eye's perf- pretty much perfect in all other respects. Um, the glare that the, the person calling is, is right. I think it is about 20% who will have persistent glare and halos because the way these lenses work, your natural lens when you're 20 flexes like, like um, it's, it's like jello. So you're, the muscles and wire and, fibers attached to the lens, let it flex and change shape to look up close. Mm-hmm. So when we when you have cataract surgery, we put a rigid lens and it's made of plastic. So what, he, what that person's talking about is these lenses have little rings on them that do far, intermediate, and close. The best version right now does all three pretty well. The rings, though, will cause glare. And usually I tell people it's, and it's hard to simulate, but usually my patients say that they'll get two or three distinct rings around headlights or Christmas lights, most of them that they persist for, say, where the symptoms persist, say they still are happy they did it because uh, they have a really good range of vision. I don't have anyone that says, I wish I hadn't due to the halos. Um, some people, the, len- the lenses don't function as well as they'd hoped, but most people they do. Um, I would say the lens company will say 5% of people will have persistent halos, but I agree with that person's um, 20% is, seems more accurate. That, mm-hmm. that people will, about 5% of your brain starts to ignore those over about a month and then they disappear. Interesting. Yeah. So my mom had cataract surgery and now she suffers from floaters that are so bad she can no longer read without having the lights on really bright and by blinking less to avoid the floaters moving over her vision. Is there anything 
that can be done to correct this. She's nervous, obviously, that something worse could happen. Yes. So there are two things you can do for floaters. <clears throat> so if you have a lot of floaters, that means those proteins that we talked about earlier, there's a lot of them. So you can't go in with a laser and break up a lot of them very well. So if you have a lot of them, you have to re- – and they're bothersome enough to take the risk of 1% of retinal detachment. You can go in – a retinal specialist, that's not something I would do, but a retinal subspecialist will go in and break up and remove the whole gel. So they'll take all that gel out and it's replaced by saline and your body just kind of replenishes that over and over with the natural fluid in the front of the eye. So that works really well. I, You know, you say it's 1% risk of retinal detachment, but of all the patients I've sent for that, I don't think I've ever seen a retinal detachment and it's it's a pretty straightforward overall surgery to do. If you only have a couple floaters and come to my office and I see that they're pretty consolidated, um, I do a laser for floaters that can work pretty well. Mm -hmm. And that's something I've been doing for over 10 years with pretty good results. Um, So that can help in a a smaller subset of people. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about PVD? I don't even know what that is. Mm -hmm. Posterior vitreous detachment? Yes. And that's something we touched on already. Okay. Um, So, but... It's it's the vitreous is the gel that fills yep. the eye, and when that water balloon pops, the back of that gel pulls forward, and the whole water balloon pulls off, and there's a ring around your optic nerve, and the only no only way we can tell that the back has popped off is we can see that ring come forward. So that's called a posterior vitreous detach. Posterior means back of the eye. Vitreous is the gel. Detachment means it came off. Mm-hmm. So that's that gel, and usually you get one new floater with that ring. So that's kind of a good follow-up question to the floater thing because if I have a patient with one new floater and it's that ring, usually after about three months, the brain will ignore it more and not be a bother. But if it's really bothersome, that's a good kind that responds well to the laser. Mm-hmm. You can break those up pretty well. All right, Peter, can you, why can you have 20-20 vision and then at 50 years old, all of a sudden you need readers? Because the lens in your eye is old. Okay. So when you're when you're... Say that nicely. <laughs> I'm old too. Okay. <laughs> so so um, when you get to 40, the lens in your eye, which was like jello when you're 20, and it can flex really easily to, to focus the light up close, can't flex anymore. So mm-hmm. when you're 50, the lens has lost most of its flex. So in order to make up for that flex, you need to put a lens that's biconvex in front of your eye, just like the, if the lens were flexing more. Mm-hmm. And that is what a reader does. Mm-hmm. And that's what those multifocal lenses are are made to do. I use cheap dollar store reading glasses. Will this harm my eyes? No. That's a question. No, no those are fine. Okay. Except <laughs> they might break. They're, they're well, you can buy cheap. them like in a six-pack too. You can. Yeah. Yes. And do you just gauge which ones you want based on the magnification you're getting? or um, It's not really scientific if you're at the drugstore trying right. on readers, right? It's true. I mean, if you're that person who said they're 20-20, there's an easy formula for it. Um, so between 40 and 55 is when you get worse and worse with the reading. So the the formula is age minus 30 divided by 10. So okay. if you're 40 minus 30, you have 10 okay. divided by 10 is a one. Okay. If you're 55, 55 minus 30 is 2.5 divided by 10 is 2.5 yeah. or 25 divided by 10 we don't, is 2.5. We don't do math on the show. Peter. I know. It's, never I, mind. I should have That's said, actually I, all false anyway. I should have sent you a notice, but the, <laughs> yeah, that's a violation. Never mind. Yeah. Strike about, that from the record. What about lubrication on your eyes? Uh, is it, can you overuse drops? Should you avoid them? What is your recommendation on that? Artificial tears are kind of lubricant drops that you can use. 
Um, if they're in a bottle, they have preservatives. Usually okay. we'll say four or five times a day at the most because the preservatives might make you irritated. It won't cause big harm or anything. Preservative-free artificial tears come in little vials, and those you can use every second if you want. They won't hurt anything. There is um, – I don't remember the name. It was kind of an obscure brand recently of the preservative-free bottles. It's like a um, bottle version that has a valve on it. Oh, yeah, so I know, I, yeah, I know. There, yeah. There's a recall. Yeah. So there's pseudomonas. There's a recall on yeah, those? Yeah, uh, not all of them. Okay. It's a weird brand. You'd have to look it up. I don't remember offhand, but it caused very serious eye infections. So okay. don't get that brand. Google that one. Don't, <laughs> don't get it. <laughs> I got everybody nervous now, including me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, when you think of the, the the eyes, obviously you've spent your career studying them, but isn't it a marvel what God's done with it's, our bodies? Yeah. And how complicated they are and... I know you've taken specks out of eyes. Have you ever taken a log out of someone's eye? <laughs> Only after removing the own log in my own. <laughs> the, That's usually a good place to start, isn't it? Removing the, the log in your own eye. Right. Yeah, it is pretty amazing because the optic nerve is 2 million fibers that are all wired specifically to go to a certain part of your brain. Serious? Yeah. So, you know, if it gets cut, it's hard to rewire. You can't rewire that stuff. It's kind of like spinal cord, you know. But it, they're all in the perfect location to give you the image. And, yeah, truly Amazing mm-hmm. what God's done. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it, this is more mm-hmm. fun aging stuff that, that you'll like. So at 30, you have about twice as many nerve fibers as you have at 65 in that optic nerve. So, you know, the the curse of humanity. Yeah. I thought we'd end on a high note, but we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you, Peter, very much for being on the show. Uh, listeners have loved having you as a guest and lots of great questions. So thank you. Yes. Thanks for All having right. me. That is our show for the day. Thank you so much for spending time with me. If you missed any of this, I always say go to the podcast, check it out. You can go to myfaithradio.com and the Afternoon with Bill show page. I hope you have a great night. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at myfaithradio.com.